Hello, and welcome to VoIP for Independent Telecoms. I'm your host, Andrew Ward from Ward Consulting, and I'm joined today by Austin Spreadbury from Microsoft. Welcome, Austin. Hello, Andrew. Great to be here. How does it feel me saying Microsoft? I, I wasn't sure which what to say. Metaswitch Microsoft, are you used to it yet? Yes, it's kind of uh, horses for courses, really. Since the last time we spoke, I have become a full-time Microsoft employee. And so rather than being a product manager at Metaswitch, I am now what's called a program manager at, at Microsoft. For the purposes of this conversation, I'm still responsible for the same kind of product and solution set that I was before. And that's all still under the Metaswitch brand. So yeah, in practical terms, for the, for purposes of this, not much, not much has changed. But yeah, I've got a different name and my email address, my signature and stuff. But uh, that's how it is for now. Well, good. I'm glad the the integration is is proceeding. As you mentioned, we've we've spoken once before, and we did a, a video recording back in February 2021, so about uh, seven months ago now, as we're recording this about about Sir Shaken and how how things were progressing at that time. That video is actually it predates the podcast, so it wasn't it isn't part of the podcast stream. So I will include a link in the show notes for anyone who wants to go back and watch that. Um, but yeah, in terms of kind of responsibility, I think. Yeah, is it fair to say you're still looking at um, Metaswitch Microsoft Stirshaken solutions? Is that the core of what you're doing today? Well, I mean, I've got some sort of various responsibilities in what you might call the voice core of the of the product set. But yes, I've still got responsibility for the RoboCore and Stirshaken. So, I mean, we have this joint uh, venture with with TNS called Core Guardian Authentication Hub, which is a mixture of their analytics platform and our Stirshaken, and it's the that overall solution that I'm responsible for. Excellent. Thank you. Well, I'm glad we could continue our discussion because a surprising amount has changed since February. Most importantly, in June, the end of June, we had the FCC deadline for uh, service providers to file their robocall mitigation plan in the FCC database. And ideally, in many cases, certainly for larger providers, implement Stirshaken. So we've had a, a busy few months. What was your experience of the, the time kind of leading up to the deadline? For me, it felt pretty intense and chaotic as a lot of people <laughs> things at the last minute and common with human nature. Well, yes, there certainly was a definite build-up in activity. I think even though the Trace Act was passed with a reasonable amount of fanfare in late 2019 and the FCC had been making a fair amount of noise during most of 2020 about what it was going to do, including the, uh, the deadline in the middle of this year, I think quite a lot of providers only really started to pay attention once it got quite close to the deadline. And certainly if you look at the pattern of our customers turning up search shaken and Robocall solutions, then there was a very distinct spike late first quarter, second quarter of, of this year, exactly as 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 you you alluded to. And I think the the publication of the of the of the public notice that uh, said the details for the Robocall mitigation database in April, I think it was a little bit later than 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 we'd expected, prompted a lot of that activity. Yeah, and I think I think that's fair. I think the FCC maybe didn't help themselves if they wanted people to get ahead of it by leaving some critical information uh, unavailable and the database itself not available until only a couple of months before the deadline. So that certainly contributed to the late surge of action. Um. So now that the deadline has passed, we might naively think that robocall volumes would, you know, all have gone down and the whole problem is 
fixed, but I, I was doing a bit of research and looking at some stats and Umail published some t- statistics on robocalls and they were saying that in the month of August, there were 4.1 billion robocalls in the US compared to 4.4 billion robocalls in June before the deadline, which is a decline, but perhaps not a dramatic one. Certainly the problem is not solved. What do you make of, of that? Yeah, that's a good question. So I've seen a number of different statistics, which some some have trends in them, some seem seem much more static. I think there's possibly an underlying effect, which is that robocalls might have been somewhat suppressed by the by the pandemic and fewer call centers being in operation. So maybe there's uh, downward pressure by the new technology and, and the mandate competing against sort of increasing supply because people are getting back to their old ways as as life returns to more more normal. I think we won't know for a few more months yet. And although the, the 30th of June was the deadline for putting things in place. I think people's actual robocall mitigation efforts will take a while to bed in. And so if the process is working, I would expect it to show a decline over a longer period rather than expecting there to be a a big step change between July and August, say. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I'm not sure if you have any visibility from um, you know, Call Guardian Authentication Hub, but uh, TransNexus have published some stats from their network showing that I think 75% of calls, um, even in August, were still not signed, which mm. on the one hand, we know for smaller providers, there's not actually a requirement to have implemented stir-shaking yet. They just need to be doing robocall mitigation. But for the larger providers, they, you know, they are supposed to have done this. Do you think... <sighs> You know, the large number of calls that aren't signed, that they're seeing at least as not being signed at the terminating provider. Do you think that's because people aren't signing them at the beginning? Or do you think it's like a transport issue where stuff's switching to TDM in the middle? And do you have any other data, you know, regarding implementation of, you know, stir shaken on actual calls? The figures that I've seen show an increase. I can't remember the, the most recent set that I was looking at, but that 75% not signed figure doesn't seem at all surprising, especially from the point of view of TransNexus's customers who are, generally speaking, the, the smaller carriers who are almost all completely IP capable themselves, but may well be suffering from there being TDM legs in between, in between them and the, and the core origination. So I have no information to suggest that the big carriers aren't doing what they're supposed to and, and signing calls. So I suspect that it's more a case, as you say, of the intermediate net stripping it out in some in some way, most likely over over TDM links. Yep. Which brings us nicely to um, the core thing I wanted to um, talk to you about today, which is this this whole issue of uh, TDM networks. As anyone who's been paying attention probably knows, you know, Stir Shaken is designed to work over SIP. It just doesn't work over TDM in the current implementation, which is not not news to the industry. And ATIS, the industry standards body, has recently published a couple of different specifications aimed at providing means by which Stirshaken could be implemented, or the, the ideas behind Stirshaken at least could be implemented even in networks that have TDM legs. If you yeah, if you're able, could you maybe start by summarizing kind of the, the two approaches that Addis have published just at a high level? And then we can, after that, we can dig into them in a bit more detail. Uh, yeah, sure. So they fall, as you say, into two main categories. One is to use bits of ISOP in some way to, to convey parts of the, the stir shaken information. 
from one carrier to another. So this can be done either by separating traffic at a station level, for example, so you have different trunk groups for A attested versus B attested versus versus C attested. Or then there's actually including things in the signaling itself where there was a there's a, a, a simple one which just encodes the attestation level in I think it's a presentation indicator or a screening indicator field. I can't remember which one it is, but there are some spare bits there which give you enough enough room to be able to say A, B, C or or nothing. And then there's a, a more sophisticated one which takes the essential bits of a, a passport and does some quite clever things to compress it uh, to get it into a uh, hundred and something bytes, I think, which they then put in the network network identifier field, which is another piece of ISUP which is which is there and might not be being used for something else. So that's the one approach. Try to try to use either separation of traffic or or fields in the ISUP to to convey stir shaken information or some of it over TDM links. And the other is the out of band approach where the call goes through the TDM network as normal, but the but the passports, the thing that conveys the stir shaking information with the signature from one end to the other, goes via another route. Uh, and the, the way that happens is that on the sending side, on the sending side you you deposit the passport in a thing called a, a call placement service labeled with the from and to numbers. And then when the call arrives at the other end, the receiving carrier goes off to the call placement service based on the from and to numbers that it has and retrieves the passport, thus avoiding the fact that it might have got stripped out some way along the route. Now, that's that's just one, one example. It might be an intermediate carrier uh, doing that to to get it past a TDM leg, and it might all appear to be SIP at both ends. But that's the that's the general the general picture. Um, so that's why it's called out of band. It's passing separately from the from the TDM signaling path of the of the call itself. Thank you. That's a that's a great summary. So let's dig into the first of those first. The kind of shaken over TDM option. So. On the one hand, you know, I, this seems appealing because you're just kind of simplifying the problem as much as possible. You're not creating new infrastructure. You're just saying, let's find a way of getting the shaken information or the passport information or the attestation information from carrier A to carrier B. Uh, and like you said, they actually, the spec defines multiple options. You can just, you know, split the trunk groups up or you can use the, the different ISO bits. That seems appealing. I'm curious from your perspective, as I look at this, I think, well, okay, I can imagine Metaswitch as a active or Microsoft as an active, you know, uh, you know, vendor who's creating new software versions, updating their SS7 stack to, you know, make use of these new fields in SS7 to transmit the information. But it's hard of me to imagine that people who've got, you know, five ESSs or, you know, DMS 100s out there are going to be able to use this. And I would imagine that's the core of the network. Do you have any views on whether the the kind of clever, you know, bit stuffing um, angle is actually going to be useful in practice? That's a good question. I think the separating by different trunk groups is something which is which is is technically technically feasible without any any software changes. The obstacle there is more how do you guarantee that that happens end to end? If you're just if you've got a simple relationship of one of originating service provider communicating directly over trunks to a terminating one, then it's obvious that you could create a bilateral agreement between between the two and separate your traffic that way. And that's that's all fine. It starts to get more complicated if you need to impose that condition on all of the intermediate carriers to make sure that the traffic remains separated all the way along. So you know when it gets to the far end that it has 
definitely traverse to trunk groups all the way along. That means you can guarantee that it's that it's that it's air tested. So I think in software terms, there's no issue. It's it's it is doable. I just think it is it is difficult in practical terms for anything but the but the simplest of cases. The bit stuffing ones, as you as you put it, probably not the right term. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Let's say you, using using quote spare bits of of ISUP. I, I must confess, I, I'm not an expert in the capabilities of the. Of the, of the switches here, I, I know that the, the the simple one involving just putting bits into uh, whichever one of the indicators it was. I, I apologise, I can't remember. Came from somebody at Ribbon, and Ribbon, of course, have the X X Nortel technology. So one might infer that, for example, Nortel switches may be able to may be able to be configured to do this. I I, I don't know in practice whether that's a, a capability that is available on all switches. And the other thing to say, of course, is that this this field is in ISAP for a reason. So you've got to question whether there may be other uses of that in the call path between the originating and terminating service providers that could that could that could mess up the use of it for this. I.e., is it genuinely spare all the way along? I, I've just looked this up. It's the ISAP screening indicator. Is at least indicator. one of the examples used. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, and that seems like at least logically sensible for the for the purpose being used here, because it says something about what you're asserting about the DM. So, again, if you could make a series of bilateral agreements all the way from your originating provider to the terminating one via the intermediate ones, and none of them were using that for something else, and all of the switches could be configured uh, to handle it in the appropriate way without doing something to it, then I could see how that would work. As a sort of a sidebar here, I, I wonder about the utility of just passing that one piece of information, the, the attestation level A to B, A, 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 B or C from, from one end to the other without, without the rest of the passport. One assumes that the people who came up with the way that Stir and Shaken have been designed and put all of that information in there thought that it was important to convey it all. So is the attestation level on its own? useful enough? I don't know. Maybe the fact that it is better than losing it entirely makes it makes it worth doing. And then to move on to the more sophisticated one using the network network identifier, where they very cleverly compress pretty much every essential bit of the passport into into 110 bytes or, or something. I mean, I think the same argument probably, probably applies if you could guarantee that it would make it from one end to the other all the way through the intermediate carriers, then that seems like a, a, a pretty decent solution. The question is, whether you can do that and whether the software exists to actually do the conversion and insert it into the ISAP in the correct place. So the obvious issue there is that it'll come into a, a switch that's presumably SIP capable on one side and ISAP capable on the other, and would have to take the passport, decode it, verify it, make sure it's okay because you can't pass it on without, without knowing that, and then manipulate it in the appropriate way, insert it into the ISUP, and then pass it along uh, with some kind of reverse process happening at the other end. Now, that sounds like a fairly significant software enhancement somewhere. And with the general push across the whole of the, certainly the US network to try to get everything to IP, you've got to question whether vendors and, and carriers would invest in developing and deploying something that required that extra amount of work. Yep. Yeah, the it feels like to a large extent this whole thing is predicated on there being these you know these trusted bilateral relationships that you mentioned between you know one carrier and the next hop in the network, and then 
in assuming, therefore, an end-to-end trusted relationship between all the intermediate carriers from one end to the other end of the network to, for example, pass the attestation information along. But it, it almost feels to me like if if we could trust all the carriers in the network, then we wouldn't have robocalls in the first place. <laughs> because, like, I mean, the PSDN, historically, if you, if you trusted that every carrier in the network was giving you the right caller ID, then we wouldn't need to do this. So... As I look at it, I don't know. Am I am I being overly harsh there? No, I think I think you you make I think you're making a very valid point when you consider that the whole purpose of the stir shaken standards was to be able to get the identity of the caller transferred from the originating service provider to the terminating service provider and know that you could trust it without having to worry at all about what what might be happening to that call in the intermediate provider and that and if you're now saying. Well, okay, well, we can get it from one end to the other by relying on the intermediate provider, then that presupposes that that problem maybe doesn't exist. Perhaps, perhaps it's just a fact that SIP networks are less controlled than TDF ones, and therefore people worry about it more from that point of view. Yeah, I guess that's an interesting argument. If you could make the case that the SIP networks are the problem, so trust in the TDM network has always been there. And so maybe it's okay to trust the TDM parts and then use Stir Shaken as you know currently implemented on the the SIP parts. Okay, cool. Yeah, I think I know. I think I think this works if you have like one problem. You, you said earlier it's a solution that could work if there was a simple problem where you've got maybe you know Stir Shaken with SIP end to end and then one TDM leg right at the end between the tandem and the final terminating carrier. This might be a a good solution. Yeah, potentially, but as an end-to-end thing, it's certainly, I have concerns about whether it would work. Well, just on the face of it, it appears to have some quite, some quite complicated challenges that would need to be, need to be addressed by multiple carriers to make it robust. I think that's probably the way I would put it. Yep. Yep. That makes sense to me. So let's switch and talk a little bit about the other one. So out of band passport transmission. Um, so as you said, the core idea here is you send the call across the network, and if there's any TDM legs or potentially you know, multiple TDM legs, you actually send the stir shaken you know, identity header information, the passport, up to a central called placement server, and then it can be retrieved later. What do you see as the pros and cons of this approach over the, the other one we just discussed? Well, I mean, it clearly doesn't require agreements between lots of pairwise combinations of carriers along, along the path to make sure that the information gets through because you're effectively saying, I don't care what happens to the call between A and B in terms of signaling and stuff, because I'm going to get information I need to the other end via an entirely different mechanism. So it, it, it doesn't, have, doesn't have those issues. The worries I have with this are, I think, probably two main ones, I think. One is, it assumes that everybody has a core placement service or access to a core placement service and that there is a universal mesh connected web of them. I mean, the standard says that you deposit your your passport in your, quote, local core placement service, and then it pushes it out to all other ones in the world, effectively. And it's, it is a one-step thing so that every, every passport is published to all other ones directly. There is no sort of intermediate, intermediate hops. That's obviously good for minimizing the number of network network tran- transactions required to get to get the stuff distributed to every to every core placement service but it does rely on every core placement service knowing about every other core placement service uh, for it to work and I think 
this is something which is which is not addressed by the standard as written, and it's explicitly um, left left out of scope. So uh, that 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 worries me. Where would the infrastructure to create that come from? So that's that's my that's my first concern. And the second is by separating the separating the signature from the call, you introduce uh, windows and uh, possible security holes that that don't exist in a in a situation where you send the passport actually in bad with the call. I mean, you could imagine a, a simple simple example if you could. If you could detect the pre- the passage of a call from number A to number B through the network and know that it was having its passport put into the call placement service, if you could somehow get ahead of that call being delivered at the other end, then you could effectively put a call into the network with the same same A and B numbers. The call placement service at the far end would pull out the passport that was put there by the genuine caller and you could effectively steal the identity of that call. Now, maybe that's not a, not a, a big a big window, but it is certainly something that is that is possible. And somebody who was able to exploit that position in the network to do that kind of thing could cause quite a lot of trouble. Would the would the caller them? I mean, would they be receiving two calls simultaneously? Because I'm presuming because the, the first call is still going through, right? Yes, but then if the first one first one gets through, then the second one will get busy, for example, and so you may not even know you have the second one. Um, I haven't done any any an exhaustive workup of all of the all of the scenarios here, but it's just something I don't think has necessarily been 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 fully fully thought through. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It, you can certainly see there is a hole there. It's unclear how how big it is and how mm. yeah yeah. It's something that could be exploited, but is that a big concern or a minor concern? I think we we don't know. the The thing about yeah. the mesh is interesting. I I don't really understand why they didn't just. I mean, we already have a. You know, I connect it as a designated, you know, central authority for certificates. I don't really understand why they didn't propose something similar for this, because with the mesh of call placement services, there's also a race there where I'm sending my call up to a call placement service, my local one, and then sending the call over a TDM leg. At the other end of that TDM leg, the next service provider is supposed potentially to check with their call placement service to find the stir shaken information. And it's assumed that it will already be there, which may or may not be the case depending on how quickly it gets propagated across the mesh compared to the speed with which my TDM call goes across the TDM leg. So that seems to have created additional complexity, which might not have been necessary if you'd had just a single centralized uh, call placement service. Yes. And I think the the, the current thinking on, on that particular case would be to delay the call at the sending side until you have more information that the, that the CPSs have propagated information. And that could solve the problem at the expense maybe of increasing post-dial delay, especially if, as could happen in a general network where you have a mixture of TDM between the originating and terminating service provider, it's conceivable that multiple intermediate service providers will seek to publish the passport in, in the CPS. That could result in could result in multiple delays. I think we we don't we don't know. Now I, I know that uh, Transnexus, for example, have have a system that they that they that they have working, and maybe they're able to comment on on what's happening in in reality here. Yep. Okay, so it's relatively easy for us as technical people to look at these solutions and see the reasons why, either for technical reasons or just in terms of like industry adoption it's hard to make these things work. And it's, I have a bit of a hard time getting past that. I look at these, I see the issues, but equally, you know, 
the alternative to this is to say, you know, let's do nothing. You know, let's just accept that robocalls are going to exist or to move the entire network to voice over IP, which mm. I'm hope will happen one day, but it could be decades, I would imagine, at the speed things are moving. So I want to ask you to maybe try to come, try to present a more positive um, future here. If... What is a positive path forward from here, which maybe uses these, you know, these solutions and maybe doesn't make things perfect, but makes things better? How could you, how could we look at the future in an optimistic way and say, okay, everyone's trying their best to come up with ways to improve things. We might not be able to fix robocalling, but can we make it substantially better through, you know, through these methods, through, through some combination of these methods or, you know, moving to more SIP trunks, et cetera. How would you approach that? Well, there's one easy button, if you like, which would be that the FCC could actually decide, no, we're going to make the whole PSCN in the United States move to IP and actually force the issue. Because at the moment, we have a situation where lots of carriers of all sizes have substantial IP networks internally, but they can't get, they can't get IP, IP connectivity. And so there are various piecemeal approaches to these to these problems that the likes of bandwidth for example who who provide ip connectivity and and, and and get that last tdm hop out of the way they're they're part of the they're part of the way forward the sort of end-to-end -end stuff using out of band probably has its place among the among the smaller carriers at any rate the problem there i think is that the larger ones are very unlikely to to adopt it unless unless forced to, and I think they would probably much rather uh, go for making the network IP because that's uh, that's moving in a direction which they want to go anyway, rather than investing in in legacy technology. There was also another another paper which were, has been discussed at the ASIS standards body, which effectively tries to cut the larger carriers out of the out of the loop altogether by considering can we just go direct from a to b using using the internet in some way now i think that's something which is worth exploring too i know conversations with with carriers in, in north america where they are saying yes that's a that's an approach they would entertain provided there was probably slightly better quality of service guarantees than you than you get with just the very basic kind of internet connection. But you can see that if you've got two carriers with decent fiber links, for example, and they are connected at least at the IP level to somewhere which is which is reliable, sending their traffic direct rather than going via the traditional interconnect network might well be a way that they can solve this problem and basically do stir shake quotes properly. I think that's an area where you need to be careful about how the regulations play in, for example, because the the uh, financial rules about how call completion is, is paid for uh, can, can get in the way. But that's a diminishing issue, I think, over time. And I know you, you, you've written about this a lot in the past. So making it possible for, for operators to, to do things in a way that makes sense, which doesn't penalize them financially, use of point solutions like how to band may, may have their place. But I think basically we just need to continue along the path which we are continue, we are down going down already of trying to get the network more ip based and thus make these problems go away that way 
the end-to-end um, thing is interesting. I mean, it, it feels very far-fetched given where we are today, but I, I'm pretty sure I read some of the nationwide number portability proposals, and they were talking about you know doing a query on a number and potentially getting an IP address back of the terminating carrier. Um, so you would know who owns that number. And of course, I mean, in many ways, it's just analogous to DNS, right? <laughs> you, you, there's some kind of central database or distributed database which knows who owns a number and gives you back an IP address or an FQDN of a destination to send calls for that number to, and that is the terminating carrier. And you can just skip the middleman. But like you say, the regulatory part of that and getting rid of you know decades of regulations is probably necessary before that becomes a reality. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Well, that's uh, a good view of some possible options for the future. I think the telecoms industry rarely moves quickly. Uh, so <laughs> I think it's going to take us a while to to get to any of them. And in two years, we have a new deadline when the extension passes. So I suspect that might get extended. It's hard to imagine that we get to a place where we're ready for that in two years. Any thoughts on that? So you're talking about the uh, the 2023 deadline for the smaller providers yes the smaller providers who got a two-year extension to the Mm. 2021 deadline through being small and yeah by uh, june of 2023 have to have Mm. implemented stir shaken and i think that extension also applies to tdm calls it's not just smaller providers yes well for for tdm the extension is effectively indefinite until a until there is a a a standard and commercially available approach and interestingly there's there's there is now lobbying starting at the FCC to claim that those tests have been met. So that will be interesting to see how that one plays out. As far as the smaller carriers deadline, well, there's a bit of a tension here, I think, because there is a proposal being being considered now to bring that deadline forward for some smaller carriers, the ones that are judged to be more likely to be sources of illegal robocalls. Right, they're measuring kind of call volume rather than just the number of subscribers. I think. Uh, yes, I, I, I'm not up with the latest on where the discussions have got, but that's but the but the criteria to be used were hotly contested, and any number of different different suggestions we've made. So there's that on the other on the one hand, and on the other hand is the fact that well, empirically we could see that the deadline has already been pushed back once because it was supposed to be 2022, and then it became 2023. I'm not sure how many of the arguments uh, made for that for small carriers on IP networks still hold water, though, because a lot of it was to do with the lack of availability of viable solutions at a reasonable cost. Speaking as a vendor selling into that market, I can say that it's highly competitive and there are many options out there. So I think I think if carriers chose to do it, then they then they do have do have means. And I don't know that the undue hardship test which the FCC would, would need to apply here would necessarily result in a further delay. So you think it's likely that um, that deadline gets kept for IP networks, but then the TDM one is probably more up for debate what happens there? Well, I mean, as, as, as somebody very wise once said, predictions are hard, especially about the future. But if I had to guess, I think that's probably right, yes. All right, cool. Well, um, Austin, I've taken a good deal of your time and I don't want to uh, extend this indefinitely because I know you've got to, got to get home. Is there anything else you want to mention before we wrap? And in particular, if, if there's anyone listening who wants to know more about you know, Metaswitch's products or you know, solutions for robocall mitigation, um, what's the place, best place for them to go to find out more? 
Well, I mean, if you go to the Metaswitch website, there is a landing page for our robocalling solution, and that will give you a, a, an entry point into to what we have and the ability to to follow up further. So yeah, please uh, feel free to go and have a look at that. No, I don't think I've got anything else to add. I think it's been an interesting and stimulating conversation. And this is a topic that is no doubt going to go to run and run. I mean, the, the people who've been involved in the standardization effort on this have been have been doing so for at least the last seven or eight years. And it took quite a long time to get the, get the original stir-shaken stir standards to the point where they were approved. I think everybody acknowledges that it's still not job done, so this is going to carry on. And of course, let's not forget that while the regulators and the, and the service providers are doing their best to stop the bad actors, the bad actors are constantly coming up with new ways of trying to, uh, trying to continue to do what they're doing. So uh, classic arms race, I think. One very interesting uh, prospect ahead. Absolutely, I suspect we may have an opportunity to talk again in a, talk again in a year <laughs> or two and see how things are continuing to progress as things hopefully become a little clearer. And yes, yeah. I'll provide a link um, in the show notes to um, the, the landing page for the Robocall Solutions at Metaswitch slash Microsoft. All right. Well, wonderful. Um, thank you again for joining me. For those listening, please be sure to subscribe or even review this podcast, as long as you like it, um, on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever you're using. And we will look forward to talking with you again for the next episode of VoIP for Independent Telecoms. Thank you very much for joining us.